Welcome to this Brews News Brewery Pro webinar on low alcohol beer tips and techniques, proudly presented by Fermentus. You can find a full transcript and links to articles and resources that we mentioned during the podcast in the show notes. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this Brews News webinar. I'm very honoured to be able to present uh, some experts in the uh, in yeast and also uh, low alcohol brewing. And uh, our panel today is John Selton. Uh, John has been head brewer at a number of well-known craft breweries and is now head brewer at Melbourne's Brick Lane, where he brews under that label. Uh, but Brick Lane is also one of the leading contract brewing facilities in the country. And John has worked with a number of brands to develop their alcohol-free products. John, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Um, Ruth Leary, who is also very well known in, in the industry. Ruth holds a Bachelor of Science degree in food science from Otago University and also an IBD diploma in brewing. Ruth studied fermentation science as a postgrad and fell in love with beer as we all did. Um, but when she, she fell in love with it when she started at Lion back in 2002. First in the technical team and then as yeast propagator, she is now the regional sales manager at Fermentus. And we're also joined uh, who, by Justin Fox, who is wandering between uh, breweries in Sydney and uh, will be joining us very soon. But Justin is, here he goes, he's, uh, <laughs> he's now at Batch Brewing uh, in Sydney's inner west. Um, Justin is head of sales, product and development at Bintani. Before that, he has worked at a, a number of, as a technical brewer at Lion and head brewing at Colonial. And he's consulted to a number of breweries, including Hawks, uh, where he brewed, in 2018, he brewed the Champion Lager um, at the AIBA. Justin, thank you for joining us as well. So just to, to the uh, participants who are watching this uh, stream, um, we're going to give a very quick overview of uh, low alcohol brewing, some of the recent developments that we've seen at the full spectrum of the uh, brewing industry, but then also, I guess, a large number of our brewers probably don't have the technical technological uh, setup to be able to brew some of those. So we're going to focus a little bit more on the microbiological uh, approaches to brewing and uh, we'll have our panel to discuss those. But John, maybe you can start by just giving us a little bit of an overview of some of the recent developments uh, for low alcohol brewing and what it has led to in terms of the quality of, of the beers that we're seeing on the market these days. Yeah, sure. Well, look, it's um, it's been something that brewers have been playing with for um, a very long time, taking a number of different approaches. Um, uh, you know, broadly, I'd say there are two big churches um, or two big schools of thought here. Um, that's not to say you can't combine these two. And indeed, a lot of people do combine the two. Broadly, there's a kind of a physical approach, right, to the production of alcohol free beer that's that's dealkalizational physically somehow removing the alcohol from say finished beer produced using more or less traditional methods um and there's been a lot of innovation in this space over the previous couple of years this used to be well and truly the kind of the territory of of, of large national brewers producing um you know with sites producing um many million hectolitres per annum but you know, increasingly, there's more and more investment from small breweries in kind of physical dealkalization. And um, there's a number of people in the craft space in the states and in Europe who have who have gone down this route. Um, there's there's a number of approaches there. The, the two main ones, I guess, I'd categorise as as um, some sort of vacuum distillation. This technology has been around for a long time. Where 
essentially you're um, you're using the physical sort of principle of, of distillation in that um, you know alcohol and the um, other um, components in the in the in the beer matrix you know um, will evaporate at different temperatures um, and you know with the application of a vacuum you know some at some you know in some sort of um, in some um, installations a reasonably high vacuum it's possible to essentially fractionate the the ethanol out from the um, the other components um, you know nowadays um, there are vendors who are producing these in very very low um, flow rates down as low as I think as 10 sort of hectoliters an hour and and operating at fairly low temperatures as well temperature has always been a kind of a concern for um, these thermal dealkalization approaches in the past from a lot of brewers I know that um, several vendors out there are sort of spruiking dealkalization temperatures um, below 40 degrees now which is um, which is reasonably low um, you know we can get into the nuts and bolts of some of these perhaps in the questions but the other the other common I guess physical approach is is um, is a kind of membrane difiltration or dialysis um, approach um, you know which uses um, a semi-permeable membrane that allows for um, yeah, either diafiltration or, or dialysis, the leaching, I guess, across the membrane of, of ethanol and water and leaving behind a lot of the flavour and aroma active components in the, in the finished beer, you know, essentially creating a, a permeate of, of, of ethanol and water and trying to hold back the kind of all the, the, um, the retentate of this, um, this uh, flavour active um, beer essence, essentially, that can be then re-diluted back to, um, back to a, um, a sellable strength. This is an approach that, again, used to be the province of only very, very large brewers. But now there are a number of, um, you know, uh, vendors on the global stage who are, who are um, making these in smaller and smaller flow rates to meet the kind of demand of smaller breweries, particularly craft breweries, and not just breweries, but other kind of fermented non-alcoholic um, industries that have sprung up. You know, kombucha comes to mind where, um, you know, uh, larger scale kombucha producers in Australia and in other markets in, in the States in particular, I can think of, can get into some regulatory hot water if their ethanol um, mm. levels in the product are too high. Um, there are a couple of other kind of um, really exotic methods that I've certainly never seen. Um, um, on the physical side anywhere in the world, but uh, are, are out there. Um, they're used in some research or trial um, scale plants that I've, um, that I've heard of, certainly in wineries or in other kind of alcoholic beverage industries using, um, yeah, kind of more novel techniques or exotic techniques like um, fractional freezing using um, solid CO2, for example. So dry ice spraying a product onto dry ice and fractionally freezing products. This is, never seen it commercialized, but I've, I've heard of pilot trials here. Likewise, um, supercritical CO2 extraction, you know, using packed columns and um, using a solvent, you know, um, to, to fractionate either across a membrane or across a, a packed column to fractionate out the ethanol and the, the other kind of stuff that you want to keep behind. But again, these are kind of um, still, I think, very much in, um, in um, prototype or trial phase. It's mainly that thermal or those membrane technologies that, that you see out there in the wild in the breweries that I've been visiting. So just tell us some of the, uh, like the just, uh, vacuum distillation method. You indicated that it's more accessible to smaller brewers these days. <coughs> Excuse me, what's, what sort of scale are we looking at there? Yeah, good, good, 
I guess it's um, I guess it's uh, it's up to um, individual brewers to determine what what sort of ROI makes sense. But they're still very expensive installations. You can imagine the kind of capital equipment involved in this um, in an installation like this is is fairly substantial. And um, even the national brewers, you know, like um, that use this approach in Australia. Their, their, their plants are of surprisingly sort of low flow rates. These products have got a, you know, a growing place in the market, right? But they're nowhere near as developed as they are in, for example, Germany or other European markets where they're much more of a sizable chunk of the overall beer market. So um, uh, I guess that the litmus test for me is looking at um, um, who's installing these things. And, and there aren't many in Australia because I'd say the market is still fairly fairly young and fairly small, um, but um, in the craft space, I'm talking outside of the national brewers. But, um, you know, if we do look, um, yeah, if you look in, um, in North America and Europe, there are a smattering of them, there's a small amount. One consideration is if you put in some sort of thermal dealkalization treatment is you've got to run the bloody thing. So um, it requires quite, quite substantial utilities investment. I mean, um, you know, um, uh, for, um, there's obviously always some sort of energy recovery in these systems, but um, just the refrigeration requirements alone, if you're running at say, I don't know what, 20 hectolitres an hour with a five degree Delta T um, that's, you know, that's um, um, 50 kilowatts of additional refrigeration. You're going to have to find somewhere to make that work. Likewise, there's the, the steam used, likewise the energy for running the vacuum pumps. You know, it's, it's not just, um, an investment in a skid itself, but indeed it's everything around it as well in terms of um, yeah, thermal energy, refrigeration, electricity. And, and, and then the, the hidden one that some people don't think about is what do you do with the waste stream? And I remember talking to you, Juzzy, um, several years ago about um, the sort of the approach that was taken at, um, at Swan with the dealkalized beer waste streams, you know, um, this stuff isn't easy to get rid of. You know, it's, um, if you put it down the drain, it's very expensive, um, you know, in terms of BOD and contribution to your, your kind of your trade waste costs. It can be dangerous in some um, installations, you know, you need to consider your ICECX or your, um, you know, explosive atmosphere kind of code. Um, if you're, if you're um, distilling this thing at levels that could be flammable, um, but yeah, um, uh, you know there are there is a degree of complexity, um, not just in the process itself, but in everything that surrounds it, including those waste streams. And some big breweries are very good at dealing with that. You know, either by putting it into new product types, or um, blending it, or um, or for example, putting feeding it to their trade waste plants and um, producing biogas out of it. But these are kind of out of the reach, I'd say, of um, of most small craft brewers, certainly of us. Which I guess is what brings us to the microbiological uh, pathways that we're uh, primarily looking at today. And just out of interest, in preparation for this uh, chat, I uh, organised to speak with uh, Philippe Janssens from Fermentus, and I've just shared the an article I posted last night um, in, into the chat for anyone who uh, is watching that might be interested. It just talks a little bit about he... Uh, Ruth, is it fair to say that he was the... Um, uh, Fermentus, a scientist that uh, discovered the, the yeast from, from the yeast bank. Is that the best way? I think he didn't invent it, obviously. No, look, yeah. And there's a there's a yeast bank of, I think, 8,000, and that's managed by, like, collections managers, mm. the whole team of people who look after what's in that yeast bank and what 
what also characterizing it all. But I think Philippe led the project to find it, to, mm. to find the right strain, because I know many were tested um, to come to choosing the ultimate strain we released first um, into this space. Yeah. And, and there, there are strains that either um, process the more complex uh, sugars like the maltose um, more slowly uh, or um, process them. But this is one that, from what Philip, uh, Philip said, just doesn't process those at all. Yeah, and that's the thing. Some of the strains we looked at were very slow consumers of maltose, um, but they would consume it. So it would risk a little bit of higher. We were sort of aiming to get a yeast where you could, um, you know, with a you could achieve around 0.5% alcohol with a relatively regular all malt fermentation um, and quite consistent. Whereas some, and then not go on to attenuate further and cause problems later in the process as well. So that's what we're looking for. I think um, aside from that, and then also flavor considerations too, were, were really um, you know, the top priority. So anyway, I've just just to um, keep things because we want to have a lot of time for questions, which I suspect there will be primarily. So that article's there if anyone wants to read it. But John, do you want to tell us a little bit about the processes that you've used, the micro techniques that you've used, and how you found them? Yeah, sure. Look, we've, we we actually use and continue to use a number of different techniques. You know, um, when we did a kind of a bit of a dive into. Um, you know, low or no alcohol beer production. We, we, we thought about the big picture, you know, about, yeah, physical approaches or dealkalization approaches. And, um, and uh, for the scale of what we were considering doing, um, we thought that um, a more reasonable approach or an easy way to get it up would be to look on the, the kind of, let's say, yeah, microbiological, but not just microbiological, I'd say sort of biochemical in general approaches you know I think you know um, what are those things that brewers do every day you know that we that we're currently kind of good at and how can we harness those to, to you know start making these product types so um, one of the one of the basic things that we want to achieve here instead of removing the ethanol is I guess inhibiting ethanol production in the first place you know and still winding up with a product the litmus test for me is winding up with a product that more or less tastes like beer and um and, and, and without some degree of fermentation, without the production of, you know, aromatic esters of superior alcohols of, you know, all the other stuff that we associate with beer flavor, it's very difficult to get something that, um, that tastes the same. So yeah, it was a bit of a path here. We actually started looking um, not just at yeast, but at, you know, the, the manipulation of kind of the carbohydrate profile of the word as well. You touched on this a little bit, Matt. Um, you know, brewers all day, every day understand um, you know, um, mashing biochemistry. Um, and we know that, you know, by by sort of taking what we do every day to its logical kind of extremes, you can actually do some interesting stuff here. So by, for example, you know, inhibiting to the greatest degree um, beta amylase, you know, which we know works just from that non-reducing end of the starch molecules, making small maltose units and instead creating mashing conditions that promote, you know, exclusively or to a high degree alpha amylase which can create a kind of a, a less fermentable carbohydrate profile is something that brewers, you know, they do every day. And this is, this is one of the places to start um, and to, to, to essentially make as unfermentable a wort as possible through, through manipulating mashing conditions. You know, another, another approach is, you know, some brewers are using this in tandem with a, a cold water extraction approach. This is something that I don't have any 
any sort of great direct experience of, but um, I've spoken to plenty of brewers who do and they've used a, an approach where they'll um, seek to get malt flavour and aroma into the beer by cold temperature mashing, sometimes then followed by high temperature mashing to get the, both, the best of both worlds. Um, beyond that, um, you know, we, we started to look at, you know, how else can we play in the brew house before we start even thinking about um, fermentation mm. to, to, to set ourselves up for success. And um, some approaches that some people take include, you know, um, uh, adjunct supplementation of the wort in, in various ways, usually to decrease fermentability, to use things that are, you know, highly polymerized kind of long polysaccharides, things like, um, you know, maltodextrin, you know, highly polymerized maltodextrin from um, corn or um, or um, uh, rice or cassava or tapioca or another source like this to make a really unfermentable wort. Um, some people also, and we've got a great question already that was sent through around using um, lactose or other unfermentable sugars to create highly unfermentable worts. This is an approach. Um, I'll come back to it, but paradoxically, you can actually sort of go in the other direction as well. As I was saying, you know, if you make a, a wort that just won't ferment, it's hard to, and Ruth, you'll be able to um, talk to this with a greater deal of expertise than I probably, but it's hard to get some of those fermentation derived flavors without some degree of, without turning on these metabolic kind of pathways in the yeast. So there needs to be some sort of yeast growth. There needs to be some sort of fermentation that goes on. And paradoxically, so what 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 that can sometimes mean depending on the the yeast choice can actually mean supplementing the wort even with glucose you know so um for making sure that you've got a um, a really clearly defined and known amount of extract yeast fermentable extract beyond the kind of the the bread and butter maltose that we make every day in the brew house um to make sure that we are getting the kind of right degree of fermentation and right flavor out of the yeast so is that where you're talking about? Because one of the things that Philippe stressed was that it's a POF positive yeast. So you do get that phenolic addition from the fermentation. Is that what you're talking about there? Uh, yeah, whether it's, whether it's, um, whether it's um, a contribution from, um, you know, um, uh, yeah, um, phenolic compounds from yeast, um, um, you know, from the yeast um, metabolism or other stuff. I'm, I'm more thinking, you know, um, the other kind of esters that we associate with, with beer flavor or the higher alcohols that we kind of mm -hmm. associate with beer flavor. These things are present in really small amounts in the beer, right? But they're, they're so integral to beer flavor. And without them, you know, beer's not beer, you know, without some sort of fermentation, um, you know, you just, you, just um, you, you lose the, um, uh, the, the, the very stuff that I think makes beer beer. Just before we move, oh, sorry, had you finished? Sorry, oh, I didn't and you end up with Malta or sort of like malt flavored soft drink or or something something like this. So yeah, it's um the fermentation and getting the fermentation right is um is absolutely critical, I think, to the to the flavor and aroma profile of the finished product. Just one of the questions before we moved on. Um, we've had a question from Jonathan Cowry in the chat room. Um, read the selection of the yeast strain. So this is going back to the to the start of that. Are there possible? Are there possibly going to be further releases with different characteristics for different styles? Ruth, uh, I, I guess you can speak to any hidden laboratory uh, trials that are going on. Or... Well, look, I'd get shot if I broke any news, but look, it's an absolute area of. Um, I think it's we've got two top priorities at, in fermenters at the moment for new developments and low alcohol is certainly a space. And I know there's more launches planned. 
Um, I can't tell you what they are yet, but definitely we're trying to give some variety. Um, the first launch, as you mentioned, is a yeast strain that performed the best from a consistency and flavor perspective. It is POF positive. Not everybody wants that, but you can control your brewing techniques and, um, and what else you do with the brew to kind of hide and mask that anyway. Um, but it does contribute to beer flavor. So that was one of the reasons it was selected first, but there will be others. Um, yeah, there will definitely be others. Watch this space. Okay, hopefully that answers that question. Now, John, is now a good time to take the first part of the question that we've already been um, forwarded, um, which is Alistair Gillespie, uh, asked he's been trying his hand at brewing now i'm not sure how much of this he wants us to actually uh reveal from his brewery's point of view <laughs> whether we're giving away uh, uh secrets anyway he, he's been uh, playing around with uh, an all specialty malt bill at 72 degrees celsius and then adding maltodextrin uh to compensate um is there a 100 percent non-fermentable malt-based body enhancing additive that can be added after ferment or is everyone just doing trial and error with maltodextrin um, till the best value is determined? Oh, it's a, it's a big question, that one. Um, I guess there's, there's a couple of different approaches. You know, um, uh, he's, he's specifically said in there, the interesting thing for me is the, is the post-fermentation addition of body-enhancing kind of substances. You know, if there's, if there's no yeast present, right, there's, there's no fermentation that's going to go on. So regardless of the, um, the kind of extract that's used, whether it's, yeah, a... Um, a, 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 you know, a, um, a maltodextrin with, you know, very low, you know, what they call DE or high DP, you know, confusingly, a high degree of polymerization or um, low dextrose equivalent, um, you know, whether it's something like that, um, which would contribute, yeah, um, extract, but not necessarily sweetness to the beer, or indeed, even if it's something, a much sweeter type of sugar, it's not unknown for brewers in Europe, for example, to produce these sort of beers and supplement with, um, sugars that are highly fermentable and that are very sweet um, purely to enhance the mouthfeel and the kind of the, um, the um, uh, palatability of these products. If there's no yeast there, that's not going to be a problem. The challenge is for a lot of small brewers to ensure indeed there is no yeast there, right? Um, that, um, that, uh, that the product is um, microbially very sound. We can get into this later, I'm sure, Matt, but... Um, but um, yeah, the, 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 the plain or the messing, I guess, with the carbohydrate profile of the, of the, of the, of the wort um, is one way of doing it. But then, yeah, don't forget that that can also be done um, at the end of fermentation after yeast separation. So after, a, um, after removal of the yeast. Um, pretty fraught um, for a small brewery. You know, we need to make sure that, um, that there's no chance of... Um, of um, you know, re-fermentation or worse, um, uh, but um, but that is an approach. And and yeah, Ruth, maybe you've got some experience with. Um, I know that um, yeah, that some European breweries will actually supplement the the finished um, um, you know bright beer essentially or beer infiltration with other um, flavor or body enhancing kind of extracts. Yeah, exactly. And there's there's a whole raft of um, like soluble fibers and things too. A little bit similar to maltodextrin, but you have, you know, corn fibers, um, you have isomultulose, which actually sounds like it's from malt, it's, um, it's from sugar. Those things are completely soluble and add to body and are not at all fermentable because even if you've got one yeast cell in there, once it's got something to ferment, it will grow, it will bud, and you've got a big problem potentially on your hands. So yeah, there's, there's some other options, but 
Yeah, and, and some brewers, again, you can add, if you've removed every single bit of yeast, you could put multi-extract in there at the end if you really want. It won't matter, it won't ferment. And one of the things that you, you raised then, so one of the things you raised then, John, which is one of the issues that Philippe raised when he spoke about it, is the residual sugars. It's very, very important. Um, you know, he, he, Philippe stressed pasteurization is important um, for these uh, beers. Um, even he wasn't even convinced about um, uh, filtering, you know, sterile filtering. He made he said that that may reduce the need for um, pasteurization, but he was fairly adamant that with sugars in there, you just and the potential for yeast, you just need to exclude. And I guess the other thing that brings in is the potential for hop creep, um, or you know the. Um, uh, the, the, the enzymes uh, interplaying uh, with the hops um, to, to break down those sugars as well. Yeah. Um, uh, do you want me to take this one, Ruth, or would you like to speak to this one? I could add a couple of things to this one. Like on the hop creep, for example, I can speak to because, you know, we've, we've released a, a yeast strain, the first one um, that we've been talking about, LAO1, it won't ferment maltose. Um, it will ferment the simple sugars. However, if you're adding a lot of hops um, during fermentation, so when you've still got a temperature high enough for the enzymes and the hops to be active enough to then uh, act uh, to break down some of those sh sugars into simpler chain lengths that that yeast can assimilate, we've seen brewers end up with a 70% attenuation from hop creep. Um, so you have, to, and that, that's quite an extreme case and it was left far too long. Um, but there's a lot of techniques and advice on hop additions to avoid hop creep. So it's, you know, right at the end of the whirlpool, then once you've cold crashed, um, looking also at some hop products potentially as well. There's all different techniques uh, to avoid it, but it is something you have to be aware of, yeah. yeah on the on the pasteurization front, I'd, I'd kind of echo the Philippe's um, comments, you know, um, we absolutely pasteurize all of our low and no alcohol products. Um, and, you know, there's a number of considerations here. There's the, um, there's the ones to do with um, product quality, for example. You know, the, the, the chance of re-fermentation of high pack pressures of the, of the product safety. You know, if you sell someone a low alcohol beer, you better make sure that it's actually low alcohol um, and that it doesn't indeed have alcohol in it because of the kind of occasions and situations in which people find themselves drinking low alcohol beer. For me, it's driving home after work, for example. Uh, it wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be great for um, me to try and explain that. No, officer, really, it's alcohol-free when it's not. Um, uh, uh, the, the other thing here, and it's worth touching on, right, is the significant sort of food safety and public health kind of concerns here. Um, it, a fair bit to unpack here and probably uh, maybe a little bit beyond the scope of what we can get into. But, you know, uh, we know as brewers, and we're, we're lucky, I guess, in our food safety management, um, in breweries that um, the beer is, is generally a, a fairly safe product. You know, there are all these hurdles to the um, growth of, um, of pathogenic microbes in beer, you know, um, uh, high CO2 content, um, hot bitter acids that um, inhibit the certain growth of certain bacteria, um, uh, um, low nutrient loads, um, low amounts of, um, um, you know, available extract to ferment or to grow on um, low dissolved oxygen, and, and critically also high high ethanol content, right? And if you remove one of these things, low acid also, as I should mention, 
you know, low pH, high degree of acid. You know, you remove some of these barriers or you play with some of these um, these things and, and yeah, it, it, it can quite quickly unravel and, and um, you can potentially have um, food safety concerns that, um, that would be beyond the, I guess, the, the everyday experience of a lot of brewers who are producing generally normal beer types and, um, and more in the, the experience realm of people who are producing beverages that are, let's say, more risky, you know, uh, less acid, um, higher pH, uh, no alcohol, lower carbonation. You know, this is really danger territory. And, and when you are exploring these product types, it's, it's kind of critical to make sure they're picked up in your food safety management planning as well. But for us, um, yeah, pasteurization for these sort of products is a is a is a kind of an absolute non-negotiable. Um, it's um, it's critical, we believe, for not just product safety, but from a public health perspective as well. Justin, did you want to jump in and say anything around that? Yeah, look, I honestly I haven't had much to jump in on so far in this at all because the. Everything that um, that Johnny said is really sitting with what we see in the market, um, and that pasteurizing pasteurization level can be more significant than than otherwise. A lot of beers are, are run through with you know between the twelve to twenty pu mark, um, and in these products, Mentis has done a lot of work and and really found fifty to be the, the bottom end. It was originally recommended fifty to one hundred pu's, mm. um, and some further testing has come back down to that fifty mark. Um, but absolutely essential. We're, we're very protected uh, in our understanding of food safety and the risks involved in pathogens. Um, and when we're going into this space, we're really changing that landscape. Yeah, I should mention, you know, there's, there's a bunch of nasties there that potentially could raise their head as well that you're not that, um, you know, that we, we don't think about too much in brewing. You know, there's, there's yeah, pathogens that we just simply don't see in beer at all. But then there's other, other things that the matrix could, you know, um, have, you know, promote growth of, or that could survive in an alcohol or, um, or um, an alcohol free or uh, a, a low alcohol product, you know, things like um, um, mycotoxin producing um, um, fungus, for example, or, um, or, or, or things that while not acutely kind of um, um, pathogenic, you know, could produce chronic health effects, you know, like um, 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 uh, polyamines, you know, the production of, you know, whatever histamines or, um, or um, um, you know, putrescine, these these kind of nasties that can have longer term chronic health effects that 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 could kind of grow um, in the absence or be you know produced by bacteria in the absence of alcohol, you know, essentially. So it's um, there's a whole range of risks there, and and best managed, yeah, certainly in our view by pasteurisation. I mean, in the in the in the best case scenario, if there was any say, just even um, yeast contamination, you know, we know that breweries are full of normal yeast. Um, with the amount of extract left, no matter what the approach to, um, no matter what the approach, whether it's using the kind of the products that fermenters make or whether it's using um, more traditional, say, arrested fermentation techniques or the cold contact method or, um, or um, something um, rare and novel and sexy like a mobilised yeast or something like that, you know, th there's going to be yeast fermentable extract left in the finished product. Um, probably, <laughs> depending on your approach, and and even yeah, simple simple brewers yeast will mean um, high pack pressures. It'll mean exploding packs. It'll mean um, um, uh, product costly product recalls and um, and a headache for the entire segment. So yeah, I'd, I'd really encourage people to think um, 
to think long and hard about the way of managing and updating, I guess, their, their food safety management around producing these styles of beer, at, you know, for customers. But then also don't, don't forget what goes on in, inside the brewery as well from a safety point of view. You know, um, if you're, um, I mean, I'm telling brewers how to suck eggs, you know, they're excellent at managing their, their safety inside breweries. But, um, you know, if it involves hoiking, um, you know, tons of bags of um, some sort of oligosaccharide or um, um, soluble fiber into a tank, you know, we got to think about that as well, perhaps before, um, before, before going down the path. So, so do, the, do these technical elements we've been talking about, do they put low alcohol production out of the sort of realms of the very small brewers or are there other solutions that they can look at? Yeah, I mean, I'd contend not. I think, um, I think that there's so many different approaches nowadays um, that, um, and so much innovation that with a keen eye on kind of food safety management, um, even small brewers can indeed um, produce these styles of beer. Um, you know, I think there's there's more um, research, you know, um, there's more um, product availability. I think from a brewer's point of view, there's never been a better time to be making these style of beers. Um, and like I said um, uh, just earlier, you know, whether it's the use of, say, novel yeast strains, um, you know, maltose negative yeast strains, um, non-saccharomyces yeasts you know there are plenty out there for example that um that are used by for example the german brewers for the production of um you know um no or low alcohol wheat beers um there's 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 so many different ways of approaching this nowadays and so much written on it and so much experience out there that i don't think there's a better time <laughs> really to get into it there's there's significant challenges, but it's um, that's what makes it kind of so fun, I guess, or so um, um, so interesting to get into. So we'll just yeah. remind. Uh, so, sorry, you, you go first. And, and and at the low end of the scale, of the the craft brewers have the advantage of, of cooling a fermentation and moving it into kegs into their own fridge and really having an opportunity to experiment without necessarily allowing that extra heat to come back in the product without releasing control of the ambient temperature storage. So. They have, they have other tools at their protection in this experimentation phase of playing with low and no, so. So I guess um, I'll just remind uh, those who are watching uh, in a distance that you, you are welcome to uh, ask any questions. We will be starting to sort of move towards questions if you want to post them. Um, we've sort of skipped across the surface a little bit in terms of the, the broad topics. Um, John, one of the other challenges is, and I think you touched on this before, is there is a conception of what beer is. And as soon as you start taking something like alcohol out uh, of the consumer's expectate or of the consumer's experience with the beer, um, there's always been a perception that there's been something lacking. We've seen a whole range of interesting um, recipe development uh, techniques used to try and still give a... Uh, uh, a satisfying drink without alcohol, but with mouthfeel and flavour. You know, how important is things like balance, you know, versus uh, replacing some of that alcohol with, you know, hop character or, you know, the, the, what are the challenges around recipe development? Well, I'll take myself off here. <laughs> You'd think I'd learn by now, right, after this long in lockdown, but no, I still leave myself on me. Um, yeah, look, I think that's a yeah interesting question. Um, yeah, and, and you're spot on. There's been a bunch of interesting kind of um, 
you know, consumer sensory science stuff done in this space, right, about um, setting up expectation around these beverages, you know, in the way that the brand marketing works and the way that the, um, they're talked about um, you know, for the consumer. Because, yeah, um, generally, especially in craft beer, if you look at, um, for better or worse, um, beer rating websites, there's a pretty linear kind of relationship between alcohol content and the kind of the general rating of, um, of a lot of products. Uh, in, the, in, a, in a review um, of no and low alcohol production, I can post you the, the, the details later, Matt, to put up in the- um, Yes, please. Yeah, there was, there was a great um, chart that someone had done looking at um, distribution of scores on, on, on rate beer or beer advocate versus ABVs. And it was, yes, yeah, bang on linear. The higher the ABV, the higher the rating. And, um, and um, yeah, you know, a lot of, brand marketing and all that black stuff that I know very little about. The, the interesting thing for me is, is how do you set up a consumer for a great experience and, um, and, 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 and more or less what can you do in the formulation of these products to give people something that really um, is not a compromise but is something that's, that's interesting and delicious. And, you know, in our kind of repertoire of, of, um, of tools or in our levers that we can pull to do that, there's things like, various kind of synergistic flavor effects or masking flavor effects or, um, you know, dialing certain things up and certain things down all the way from raw material selection through the brewing process, particularly in fermentation as well. Um, and, um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think the, the answer um, is, is essentially lots and lots of hard work, lots of, um, lots of trials, um, lots of work on, on, on formulation, but also on mastering the process, really getting to know the, the process that you're using. Some of the processes we haven't touched on, like, like arrested fermentation or like, like cold contact fermentation, they, they bring challenges as well, which, which can be, you know, can be managed. Um, some of the, some of the new or novel yeast strains that are being used have, um, have, um, um, uh, will produce, um, high levels of, um, certain off flavors, you know, like, um, um, phenolic off flavors or, um, or acetaldehyde or diacetyl is sometimes a, um, a big problem in, in some of these, in some of these fermentations as well. And so getting to really know, um, uh, what challenges you face, um, allow you to unlock ways around them, you know, either in manipulating the process or the raw materials or, or something else. So that's a pretty boring answer, I guess, or, or pretty um, um, bit of a um, platitude, right? <laughs> I don't know if I did a very good job answering. <laughs> but essentially, the answer is it's complicated, I guess, and um, and it and it and um, every approach, I guess, um, uh, has has benefits and pitfalls that need to be managed by the brewer. Yeah, Matt, I would like to just add into that. It's like what we did with mid-strengths. Like if you go back to the, the early 2000s, the only real mid-strength beers or light beers going around was Cascade and Hard Premium Light. So what's happened with craft brewers is when everyone started playing in this space, the, the beers, most of them had a hole in them. Most of them lacked a balance. They were, they were simply a, a, something missing things. And brewers have found multiple different ways to fill that gap over the last sort of decade, two decades. And I think the same thing will now happen with LAO wine. We're not, no, oh, sorry, not low and no alcohol. So we're not, we're no longer trying to replicate what the Germans and, and other successful European countries have done with low alcohols um, because they've stuck to that tradition. And now we're a generation that's going to breach tradition in that no alcohol space 
And it might take us three, four, five years to really get the nuance of the fixing that balance and keeping that body and filling those holes. Um, and it's only going to be through through more and more people experimenting and playing in this market, or say it's in Australia with 700 different brewers out there discovering new ways to do things. And, and the truth will start to come out. People will find ways that really match these beers to the profile we want to drink. And it's interesting because there is a, an element at which this is brewing science versus marketing science. If marketing is a science, we're trying to work out. And we've yeah. had a question in, in, in the chat room um, that's probably more in the marketing realm, but some, uh, Andy asked, I've noticed that most of the 0.5 and 0% beers have more sugar than a regular heavy beer, which is because of the unfermented um, maltose um, in, in, in the word. Um, but so for consumers, uh, we're solving one problem, but creating another potentially. Is it a trade-off we have to live with? Or is there some newer techniques that will be possible to deliver a full flavored non-alcohol beer with minimum sugar uh, per 100 mils? I think absolutely there will be. I think I, I'm seeing it get closer and closer. Um, some of the beers I've had recently have got, you know, for that perfect beer, like John said, you, you grab it out of the fridge at work. It's something to enjoy and just clear, clear the days, you know, so you arrive home refreshed and you process that day out. And they're 0.3, 0.4%. So I'm finding them quite enjoyable in that aspect. And I know a lot of, a lot of other brewers um, who have already entered that, say Modus, for example, with, with Nort, um, you know, Matt up there thoroughly loves drinking that as, you know, that first go-to beer that you're just looking for something refreshing at that point, um, not necessarily looking to get on the booze. So if they are becoming closer and they are enjoyable drinks now, um, whether the true matchup um, ever comes where someone can't pick it, um, time will tell. But I guess that question was actually looking at the residual sugars that are in, that are in there. And it's always a trade-off. In a regular beer, the, the 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 sugars are converted to alcohol, which is where the kilojoules come in. But a consumer looking at the nutrition panel is still going to see that there are a lot of carbohydrates or a lot of sugars in that beer. Um, well, the, and- the consumers have jumped on all these juices, and they're all finishing at six play-doh. So I, I'd, I'd argue that a good low alcohol has got less sugar in it than the DDH oat cream, you know craze that's hitting the market now and the consumers are happy to jump on that so but as you know about <laughs> balance and, and contribution i guess and, and how that works in a flavor profile and that's why it stands out in a low alcohol because you're not hiding behind so much stuff but low alcohol the, the low alcohol um growth uh, in, in the market has been on one uh, end driven by this increasing health consciousness um, that people looking at, you know, like we've seen in another spectrum, seltzers um, very strongly proclaim their lack of sugar um, as, as a marketing thing with low alcohol sitting somewhere in that space where it's health conscious, but still beer. Do you think that um, the residual sugars will be an issue or Ruth, is there development? Yeah, I mean, look, there's, there's things you can do to definitely reduce the sugars, but there's always going to be some compromises, whether it's on cost, because you're spending a lot on a soluble fiber for, for body and non-fermentability or, or, or what you're doing, or, or having to really up your dilution factor as well, and then add back everything to, to give it enough um, flavor and character. Um, there, there's definitely things you can do, but um, the products I've seen that are you know, there's a famous Asahi zero, zero product, zero carbs, zero alcohol. That's not beer. 
by our regulations. It's made with, you know, all sorts of interesting ingredients. Um, and most of them we wouldn't be able to use really and call it beer in this market. So mm-hmm. to have it a beer um, and fit within there, I think it, it's quite hard to achieve no residual sugars unless you're spending lots of money. So <laughs> the, how important uh, is it? It's an interesting thought yeah. because, um, yeah, look, I, 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 I'd actually look at it a slightly different way. You know, I think that um, genuinely without any, um, without any kind of health washing, right, of these products, they, they tend not to be ridiculously high in residual sugar. Um, the, the real extract in a lot of these products um, of whatever it's made up of um, tends to be not that dissimilar from a lot of um, standard kind of strong craft beers. Um, and the other thing is if you're comparing it against what I drink, a, um, you know, in the occasions where I drink an alcohol-free beer, I'd probably otherwise be drinking um, a CSD. I'd probably be drinking some sugary soft drink. And it's miles apart from that. So mm. I think I think without, you know, honestly, without health washing us or without a brand marketing cap on, um, uh, I, I think genuinely they represent, it's, it's, it's not so interesting for me what this means for the, the craft beer drinker wanting to drink um, um, no alcohol beer. I think the bigger and more interesting thing for me is um, the CSD drinker that's wanting to get away from, you know, 20 plus teaspoons of sugar per drink. Um, into something that's um, that's natural and healthy and far lower sugar and fermented and has all the other sort of functional health benefits of fermented beverages, you know, um, um, you know. And so I think in, in that in that regard, I um, I think it's not bad, you know. And and certainly when you look at total um, in some of the products, like like I mentioned, we 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 make a range of products um, uh, using a range of different techniques, right? So we've had a had a had a cut at this um, using a couple of different approaches. And if you look at, for example, the um, the um, total energy, you know, in, in these products, they tend to be excellent, you know, especially, you know, re- you know, against a normal beer, but especially if you're looking at alongside a, a, a choice of drinking a, a carbonated soft drink, you know, which is just um, really, really terrible for you in comparison to these other products. Yeah, Justin, and you, you wanted to jump it. in? Yeah, you can liken it back to when low carb started kicking the, the social... A sort of the health conscious story and, and it was pure blonde and all these other beers saying you know a third of the carbs a quarter of the carbs and if you looked at those beers as a total calorie input on, the, on their body the five percent alcohol plus no carbs is far more impactful on the body than a four percent alcohol beer so by ripping that alcohol out you're dramatically dropping um the carbohydrate loads and the impact on the body in a health conscious way so the question is really, if you've, it's exactly as John said, the, the products that these are replacing are carbonated soft drinks, they're iced teas, they're, you know, would you rather have that than a chalk milk on a hot day or something like It's just a replacing a different part of the market and that nutritional value is far higher in, in low and no, especially there's been some studies overseas that, the, that a couple of 1% beers after sport will rehydrate you far better than water, far better than Gatorade, far better than some of these other products claiming to be the ideal recovery drinks. Because that, that nutritional sugar is natural, it's fermented, oh, sorry, it's gone through a fermentation and it's it, it integrates and works with your body better than the other options that are out there. So I think it'll own its own market in that. And again, it might not be as high as uh, you know Imperial Stout even, but it'll own that sugar space. And if we can make it balanced, um, the products will, will take, in my opinion. 
Great. Okay. So look, we haven't had any other questions. So I'll just sort of step back to Alistair's. Um, the, the second part of his was looking at the benefits of lactose over maltodextrin. Um, it is used solely because, is it used solely because it's non-fermentable or has it got other benefits? John or Ruth? Uh, I'll, I'll have a cut first if you'd like, Ruth. And then, um, it, well, it's certainly got some challenges. I'll tell you about that. So it's, um, it's uh, um, you know, depending again on the, 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 the target market for this product, you're, you know, you're introducing a, an animal product. So there's no more... Um, opportunity to make, um, say, um, uh, um, you know, um, vegan claims on the product, you're um, potentially introducing allergens. So you need to think about allergen management as well inside the brewery, um, uh, you know, because you're, you're handling milk. So you can't maintain a, a clean label, perhaps in the same way as you could have otherwise. The, the, um, the, the other thing is, um, I guess, in terms of familiarity of brewers with lactose, it's, it's not something that people are unfamiliar with. So again, it's a, it's a way amongst all the others that Ruth's talked about, you know, the use of yeah, soluble fibers or, um, or, um, or um, polysaccharides or, or, or all the range of other products that are out there. Um, it, it, it's, it's just a, another way. Um, and um, all these, all these products have quite different impacts, I guess, not just on the fermentability of the, of the finished product, but also on, on flavor and on mouthfeel, right? Um, if you don't believe me, you know, try, try tasting, um, you know, um, glucose, you know, try tasting um, some powdered dextrose against some, um, you know, some um, um, corn fiber, soluble corn fiber or very, very high, highly polymerized um, maltodextrin or, or, um, or um, you know, or maltodextrin from cassava or something like this. You know, there's, there's quite a, quite a huge difference in the, in the, kind of the organoleptic effect of, of your choice here, um, as well as on the fermentability of the, the wort that you're producing. So that's certainly something to consider. And it's, and it's something that we think about a lot at Brick Lane um, through our product formulation phases um, and also through brewing trials on these styles of products. You know, we, we really think about um, not just what gets us the number at the end of the day, but what, what, what gets us the best flavor outcome you know what's the what's the best way of producing a wort that um or a finished product more to the point that tastes just how we want it to taste or just how our customers want it to taste um just to receive a question um peter philp in uh john have you used the membrane filtration technique and how are the results if so and as a follow-up uh actually maybe answer that he does have a follow-up yeah. Okay. Well, um, no, I haven't. I've drunk plenty of Adnams ghost ship, you know, uh, that's, that's, uh, so I've, uh, I've certainly, um, I've certainly drunk plenty of beers that have been produced using that technique and spoken to brewers who have used it. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, there's, um, there's, there's, it's more within the reach nowadays of the smaller breweries. There are a number of vendors, um, on a global kind of level that are producing these at smaller and smaller flow rates. Um, there, there are aspects of it that, you know, um, without having used it, that I, that I really like from the literature and from the beers that I've tasted, particularly for the production of hoppy, hoppy beers and hop flavored beers. Um, but it's also, look, it's, um, it's not without its challenges. It's energy intensive, um, uses a lot of electricity to, to drive the high um, pressure gradients across the membranes. 
it's, um, it uses a lot of water in the diafiltration phases as well. So it uses a lot of, um, uh, a lot of deaerated water as well. Um, so you need to have those utilities there and available in spades to, to use this technique. The upside is if you also want to make a seltzer, that's what comes out the other end of this machine. Right, so um, so uh, you know the waste streams could contents could well not waste streams the co-products um, that you that you produce um, out of one of these plants could 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 be another product stream for you and 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 it's when you start thinking about this that that, that some of those ROIs or some of these projects might start to stack up um, commercially you know because you're not just making one product potentially you're making a number of them um, yeah I've, I've I've had several and I've um, and I've and I've enjoyed them thoroughly. Or if not seltzer, maybe hand sanitizer, given the times that we're in. Um, yeah. And Peter also followed up uh, since the source beer for the uh, membrane technology is a fully fermented beer. Then what is the resultant uh, carb sugar level? And uh, I'll be honest, that's something that I've tried to get answers from Heineken about um, because when you look at the technique that they talk about using, and then the carb levels that are listed on the bottle. There's something obviously being added in at the end to for the flavor. Um, do you know anything about uh, that process or what's leaving those uh, unfermented sugars? Well, not to give up the ghost or not to give away all of our, uh, do a lot of work to develop these, not to give away all of our, um, all of our trade secrets. The, I, th I think a lot of people don't go necessarily one way or the other. You know, there's, there's often um, hybrid approaches. And I think some of the, some of the best approaches to low and no alcohol production actually um, are hybrid approaches that use that use a number of techniques at once. Um, uh, you know, recently I was talking to colleagues in um, in Brazil who were you know who were in the brewery that were making a huge amount of um, Malta, you know, uh, or um, or um, similarly a, a a colleague in um, in um, in Latvia who was making a huge amount of kvass, you know, a similar sort of um, uh, you know, fermented low alcohol, and and it's it's not just one approach these guys take. It's um, it tends to be a number a number of simultaneous approaches, a number of ways in, um, and um, and that will often get the best. I reckon the best um, you know flavor outcome and the best product in the end. So it's a, it's it's fiddly. It's a, it's a pain in the neck, but it's um, um, you know nothing comes easy either. You know, good things take work. I reckon. Uh, another question I've noticed on the label for athletic brewing in the U S who are very well known, uh, but they don't call the product beer. They only mention brewed. It does contain yeast though. Um, any thoughts on why it's not labeled beer? I'm assuming it's fermented as it does contain yeast. That might be one for you, Ruth. I'm not, I'm not sure about the regulatory kind of, um, um, framework over there as much as I am in Australia. Yeah, look, and I, neither, um, about the U S I know little bits and pieces, but, um, I believe, I know you have to ferment um, to call it a beer, which will be part of it. Um, what was the, what was on the label? The um, Just brewed. It just says that it's brewed, brewed but not yeah. beer. So. Yeah. Um, and I, I know that the regs say that you can use any carbohydrate. Um, a suitable carbohydrate source includes things like sugar for a beer. So you, that's why seltzer over there can be pure, pure dextrose and, and still be a beer, for example. Um, they are fermenting. I think they're using some sort of specialty sugar, athletic brewing as well, or fiber. Um, yeah, but sorry, I, I, I can't really answer that one. I'll take that as a question on notice and do some research yeah. um, for, for the show notes. Um, 
Now, the, the, the one other question we uh, had submitted was um, from Alistair saying that if he, fi he finds if he gives the yeast no work, I, for example, almost no fermentable sugars, that the resulting beer is very worthy without uh, many esters, beer flavours. Conversely, when I create a beer at plus uh, 1.5%, I need to dilute heaps, and then it's a gamble without proper de-aerated water and minimal lab equipment to calculate any dilutions. Not sure if I just need to do more lab trials to find a dilution middle ground, or is it just up to the uh, technical prowess of his diluting game? I think, I think you know, sorry, Ruth, you go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna speak to a little bit of that because that's something that um, we've been giving advice on, of course, with some of, if you're using, if you want to play around with the technique of, with fermentation and um, you know, there's the cold contact talked about or the arrested fermentation, you're going to get not much um, flavor development. You were talking about it before, John. And that's why we were looking for a yeast that did create some beer character um, as much as possible when the maltose hasn't been touched. So you're only maybe in a typical wort or malt wort fermenting up to 15% of the sugars. Um, so there is some tips, you know, when you're fermenting, the pH also naturally decreases. So you you look at things like pre-acidifying the wort down to maybe 4.5. Obviously balancing, you, you get a good um, body, which used to be a problem with low alcohol beer. They were all thin and watery, but when you've got some residual sugar and, and maltose adds a lot of body and not as much relative sweetness as something like, um, you know, sucrose or glucose, that's going to be quite nice. But if you balance it out with hops, so the hop additions are really important. Um, obviously avoiding the hop creep. Carbonation, playing around with carbonation to add a little bit of acidity and bite as well. Um, you know, if you're making a wheat beer, then it's good. You can you can enhance that phenolic poff character to your advantage. Um, but yeah, some of those techniques on pre-acidification, the best beers I've had made with, um, you know, some of these lower attenuating yeasts, definitely pre-acidification and hop hop character is is the key. I, yeah. I I think he's hit on a couple of really important points in, in, in that question, you know, and um, uh, um, yeah, it's giving the, 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 the yeast work. I like his, I like his term there, you know, and, and I think Ruth and I and probably would agree that, um, yeah, you know, there needs to be, there needs to be um, fermentation derived flavors there. You know, there needs to be, um, um, you know, that, that, that's essentially in my mind, what makes beer beer. Um, and um, and yeah, depending on you know, there, there can be some sort of some small pitfalls if you if you do, depending on the yeast choice and the yeast strain that you're using. If you are producing a, a highly unfermentable wort um, with with no yeast fermentable sort of extract in it at all, so no no um, no very low glucose or very low um, um, fermentable um, extract, you know, you, you you may risk simply not developing any any fermentation derived flavors. So, um, you know, as brewers, we know how to manipulate, um, you know, the, the various metabolic kind of pathways in the yeast by playing with the process. But, but paradoxically, I've, I've seen products like this made that actually supplement wort with, with um, fermentable sugar, that supplement wort with glucose so that there's a, a predefined amount exactly of, um, of fermentable glucose in there to get, the, to get the yeast doing its thing, to produce flavour, to produce, you know, these these superior alcohols and to produce these, um, these esters that are so critical to making it within cooey of what an actual beer tastes like. The, the other point that I really like from the question is around um, 
um, the process control. You know, if you are using arrested fermentation, or if you are using, um, even if you are using special yeast, for example, um, control of the carbohydrate profile in the, in the wort or of the, the yeast separation or of the chilling of the tank is, um, is critical, you know, like um, in a, in a five and a half percent beer, if you over attenuate by, um, by say 2% ABV in the green beer, sorry, by 0.2% ABV in the green beer, it's a, it's a small remedial dilution to make the, to make, to make the difference up, right? Um, in a, in a 0.5% beer, an over attenuation of 0.2 is almost a 50% dilution to make up the difference. So, you know, everything is, um, uh, uh, you know, everything requires a higher degree of control, um, you know, it requires, you know, really close um, process monitoring and really close control of the process. And some of these techniques, um, including, I'd say, some of the maltose negative yeasts, um, even they, you know, um, depending on the interaction with hops, as we've talked about in the past, you know, really need a, um, a, a, a very close, um, a very close eye. It's easy for breweries that are running um, around the clock. So we've got that kind of in our back pocket in that, you know, we've got, we've got people on site um, 24 hours. Um, to help manage these fermentations and help manage these sort of products through the process. But it's, um, yeah, good process control is kind of essential because your, um, your goalposts, your, your kind of your operating envelope is so, um, so narrow in comparison to say a, um, a standard, um, say 5% beer or 12 degree Plato beer. You know, it's quite, um, quite, quite a different beast. Justin, were you wanting to jump in there or? Uh, yeah, just one quick comment on that around the differences between actually targeting your 0.5 at the start or targeting 1.5% and diluting. Remember, the, the higher the gravity, the, the exponential curve of those esters and some of those fermentation flavours we're looking for. So the, the interesting trial might actually be to go more than 1.5%. It might actually be to look to dilute, say, 4.5% or even higher because you're going to concentrate those esters to a rate that will then be higher in the overall 0.5% beer. So... Um, just, just a nothing, nothing I've actually looked at or experimented. Just the thought around the, the importance of getting the fermentation characters in, and then that'll lever you can pull to get more in there in the end product. Great. Well, that's the last of the uh, open questions, and we've uh, done our hour. So, if there aren't any more questions, Ruth, is there anything that you wanted to uh, say to finish off with? No, just that I'm really happy to take any questions um, as a follow-up. If anybody wants some tips and tricks on how to get the most out of, you know, using a specialty yeast, for example, or some, you know, some other biological approach questions, then really happy to help on that. Justin, anything that you wanted to finish off with? Uh, not at all. Thanks, uh, everyone. I think um, from my point of view, uh, uh, everything that John and Ruth have uh, added in there is just on point uh incredibly sammy says goodbye from filter is now open great looking brewery and uh thanks to the batch guys for a lovely beer but no thanks matt for putting it on as well pleasure well guys and john thank you very much uh, uh for is there anything you want to finish off with john i guess you've had the uh the lead run with this no just a big thank you to everyone yeah it's uh thanks for asking us to participate big um big honor and um and yeah always a great opportunity to learn as well so thanks ruth for all the great information and um, yeah, um, likewise, if anyone has any questions about these sort of um, these sort of products, feel free to get in contact. You know, we're making at Brick Lane um, 
we're 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 doing this a, a fair bit now. So um so feel free to feel free to reach out if anyone has any questions. Thanks and obviously, uh, Saf Leo one is available for, uh, from Fermentis uh, from Fermentis via Bintani, so you can uh, get in touch with uh, Ruth or Justin outside. I was, I was trying to limit the number of calls you were going to take, uh, John, given that you've got a day job. Whereas answering questions about this is Ruth and uh, Justin's day job. So uh, I'll, I'll put a, a contact details in the in, in the show notes. Um, but thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, everyone, in the uh, who, who's been. Uh, part of this webinar for uh, joining us and uh, to ferment us for making it possible. It's uh, been a fascinating journey into the world of low alcohol beer. Thanks for having us. Thanks, thanks very much, guys. Thanks, yes. John. I've learned a lot. See you guys. Oh, me too. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Yes, bye bye.